Hello there, you lovely geeky people. Good evening and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. This is Reggie here again with yet another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. And, you know, maybe a couple of other things sprinkled in. I know you're probably getting sick of hearing me say this at this point, but it's been a week, folks. It's been a very definite week. Um, it was always going to be a tricky week this week. Uh, there, there, there was a trip planned. As I re record this, it is knocking on for 10 o'clock at night on the 1st of November. And um, this show goes up tomorrow at 8 o'clock. Um, this week was always going to be disrupted. I, I usually do most of the recording for this show. I do a little bit on a Monday, a little bit on a Tuesday. There's never any time on a Wednesday. And I finish everything off on Thursday. That's how this normally goes. Now, I already knew that recording stuff on Thursday was going to be an issue. Some family stuff going on, planned in advance, all taken care of. I was going to get this week's show recorded on Monday and Tuesday. And I did get some recording done on Monday. You'll hear that in a bit. It's the bit about Dracula, because I was in a bit of a Halloweeny mood on Monday. I have to be honest. Also, I'd just seen a piece of news that I'd missed. But anyway, you'll hear about that in a minute. But then some stuff. Let's just leave it at that. Some stuff happened on Monday afternoon, which meant that I got nothing done on Tuesday and I got nothing done today until I'm sitting down here now. And I'm still going to get nothing done tomorrow. What I'm saying is normally and I know, look, there has been hollow laughter when I've mentioned this in the past, but I do normally actually write something that looks remarkably like a script. Well, I, I haven't done that this week. I, I am. Th this is the most on the fly episode I've ever recorded, basically. And there's a couple of bits coming up that are pre-done. Uh, Venna von Braun is finally coming up because I've I've finally got time to definitely drop that in here. Uh, and in fact, I'll do that in a second. Uh, and there is some news that I've pre-recorded. Everything else, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to be surprised by what's in this show this week as you are. So, shall we get on with it? Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Nazi schmazi, says Werner von Braun. Don't say that he's hypocritical, say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department, says Werner van Braun. <laughs> some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German or English, I know how to count down. And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun. Tom Lehrer's 
ballad of Werner von Braun there. We've played it before, and I think we can agree once more that Tom Lira really hated Werner von Braun. Really, really, really didn't like him. And you know what? That's okay, because I don't like him much either. Um, I, I, I should confess, at this point, a long time ago, when I was a teacher, I ran the Rocket Club, and... I kind of made characters out of the great names of of rocketry. I, I, I kind of made it into a family. And so we had um, Carl Robert Goddard and, you know, that kind of thing. And I confess, I confess, um, I would refer to Werner von Braun as Uncle Werner. And, you know, I kind of think that was a bad thing for me to have done back in. It simplified things. And. Honestly, the Rocket Club was not about the, the, the politics and the hand-wringing that goes with space exploration. But still, I uh, I kind of wish I'd been a little bit more upfront about the negative side. And OK, so we've covered Von Braun's early career. And what we see is a young man who clearly is bright, clearly is driven and clearly has a certain amount of privilege in his background. Perhaps this is what makes it difficult for him to understand that getting what he wants isn't necessarily the only thing that matters and that the ends do not necessarily justify the means. It's difficult to say at this distance, but we do know that von Braun enters the Second World War as a high-ranking member of the Nazi party. Now, whether he bought into the Nazi ideology or not, he, he would deny that later, as, to be fair, would many people who enthusiastically embraced the Nazi party. Whether he was doing that simply because he thought that was the best way to get on, actually, I don't care. He joined the Nazi party. That's enough. For me, um, I do think it's worth pointing out that many people we know did join the Nazi party, not because they were big fans of Hitler or indeed because they believed in what the Nazi party preached. They joined the Nazi party because it was the way you got things done. I think I, I might be prepared to take von Braun at face value when he said that, you know, he was not a Nazi, he simply joined the party because that was the way you got things done. If his behaviour during the Second World War had been different, it was possible to be a Nazi, or at least a member of the party, and not be a dreadful, vile human being. I would point you at Oskar Schindler. I mean, yeah, you can call him a war profiteer member of the Nazi party if you want. Certainly he made a lot of money during the Second World War and he was a member of the Nazi party. But he kind of went out of his way to save a lot of lives during that time. He used his position and worked within the system to save people. Von Braun. Well, let's see what Von Braun as we said, at the start of the war, von Braun was a 
senior. Well, not senior. He was a high. He was a a member of the Nazi Party. He was a known, a well-known member of the Nazi Party. He was attracting attention from people who moved and shook in the Nazi regime. But it was in 1940 that he was approached by a member of the SS who brought with him an invitation from the Reichsführer Heinrich Himmler to rejoin the SS as an SS officer. Von Braun went to his military superior. It's important to note the SS were not part of the German army. They were a sort of separate Nazi army as part of the Nazi thing uh, and separate from the German army as such. And von Braun went to his military superior, his army superior, Walter Dornberger, who advised him that it would be politically inconvenient for the missile programme that von Braun was working on if he turned that offer down. So von Braun went along with it. Um, could he have made excuses to get out of being an SS officer? Yeah, probably. Would that have been wise? Well, it depends what you want to do. I mean, von Braun always justified his conduct during the Second World War by saying, look, he had no interest in making missiles. He wanted to build rockets to go to space. But there was a war. And the only way he was going to get funding to build rockets was to make missiles. And so that's what he was doing. And I can't help thinking that a man of conscience, knowing what his missiles would have been used for, would perhaps have thought, yeah, you know what? Maybe I'll wait until the war's over before I do the missiles. And, you know, I, I leave it to you to make your own moral judgments here. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 it makes me slightly queasy. Um, now, you could say, well, that's exactly what Oppenheimer did. Oppenheimer was working on physics. He was really interested in the physics that made the atomic bomb possible. He just wanted to do his physics, but there was a war on, so what was he going to do? I think the difference is Oppenheimer did care about whether his science was used for mass destruction. Von Braun didn't. I think Oppenheimer, I, I, from everything I've read, Oppenheimer was tormented by the results of the project that he led. Um, yeah, I, I don't know whether he actually said, I am become death destroyer of worlds, or whether that's apocryphal. But I think he felt that from everything I've read. Um, von Braun, by contrast, seems to have looked at the death-wielding weapons that he was partially re responsible for creating and just went, <laughs> cool, which I, I think is an important difference in approach at the very least. Certainly, there is a record of a meeting after the war between Von Braun, once Von Braun was involved in the American space, in heavy air quotes, program, um, 
in which he basically said to Von Braun, and apparently horrified Von Braun, by saying, hey, you, we put your bomb on my rockets and we're away. Which, yeah, anyway, we're flashing forwards a little bit. Um, for whatever reason, Von Braun goes along with the invitation to join the SS and becomes an SS officer. By 1943, he had risen to the rank of Sturmbannführer, uh, which equivalent to a major in an Anglophone hierarchical system. Um, because Heinrich Himmler really appreciated the rocket work that von Braun was doing, Himmler saw that here was something that perhaps could salvage the war for Germany. By 1943, the writing was on the wall. And if you talk to any military historian, which I am not, they will tell you that the, by, by 1943, it was clear that Germany could not win. No, the Nazi state could not win the Second World War. By that point, about the only thing that was at, at question was what will the terms of the surrender be? On what terms will this war end? And I think Himmler saw the that von Braun's rocketry could give the Nazi state enough of an edge that they might get decent terms, that they would be able to negotiate from a position of strength as opposed to a, a position of utter defeat. In 1942, the V-2 made its first successful flight. Uh, it was in October 1942. Hitler, who was motivated by what was at that point a seriously wor worsening war situation, did not take long to approve full production for this weapon, despite the fact that this was really immature technology. It was not particularly reliable at this stage. The only problem that they had was where to get the workforce from. The Eastern Front was chewing up German manpower. And so who was going to operate the factories that were required to mass produce V2 rockets. As elsewhere in the Nazi war economy, the answer was very simple. You turn to the exploitation of foreign workers and concentration camp inmates. An SS camp was founded at Pienemunde, which is where von Braun was establishing his rocket factory. At the same time, prisoners were also brought to two other potential V2 factory sites. Uh, in August 1943, there was a massive uh, RAF raid on Pienemunde, and both Hitler and Himmler decided that what they needed to do was concentrate the manufacture of these weapons in an underground plant that would be safer from and more resistant to Allied bombing. This led to the founding of the camps at uh, Mittelwerk and Dora. Von Braun was not involved in the decision-making loop about who the labourers 
in his factory at Metalwork was going to be. But he was then in direct contact with the workers and also with the conditions in which those workers lived and worked. So he would later claim that he had not known what the conditions of his workers were. Uh, we know that this is not the case. Uh, he would go on to admit to the West German court in 1969 that he had seen the terrible conditions underground. He never admitted seeing dead bodies or receiving sabotage reports that led to prisoners being hanged. Um, prisoners suspected of sabotage in von Braun's factories were summarily executed, uh, which uh, I believe is a war crime. But he says he did not know about that. <sighs> Again, I, I leave you to decide whether you believe him or not on that. Uh, certainly in the summer of 1944, we know that von Braun did try to help a French prisoner, a physicist called Charles uh, Sadron. But that was not an altruistic thing necessarily. He had ulterior motives for this. He wanted Sadron's help. Uh, he definitely talked to the commandant of the Brückenwald concentration camp about transferring skilled prisoners to uh, the Mittelbauer Dora complex uh, to work in a laboratory that he hoped that Sadron would be leading. Sadron actually refused to do this to his immense credit. Uh, and some men were transferred, which could, could further implicate von Braun in crimes against humanity. However, at the same time, von Braun clearly was attracting the wrong kind of attention from his Nazi compatriots. Um, he was arrested by the Gestapo uh, and freed only after the intervention of General Dornberger and the armaments minister Albert Speer, who testified to his indispensability in terms of the V2 programme. Um, now, it's this arrest that seemed to have crystallised von Braun's feelings of unhappiness with Hitler and the Nazi regime. He had met Hitler four or five times by this point. Um, there are historians uh, who say that, you know, effectively von Braun had sort of unwittingly wandered in to this sort of bargain with the Nazis, um, accepting the money and the power he wanted to build rockets and not thinking too hard about how they'd be used, how they were built, and almost had been quite naive in his dealings with the Nazis. I don't think I'd buy that. Uh, von Braun was a much savvier person than that, as far as I can see. Um, but certainly, I mean, getting arrested by the Gestapo will focus your mind considerably, I think. And I think at this point, after his arrest, uh, he realised that he was trapped and in a difficult situation. But he still seems to have held to some Nazi ideals. And certainly his loyalty to the army and his superiors was unshaken. He began to be seen much more often in SS uniform 
Um, now, perhaps that was just to signal to real Nazis that, you know, he wasn't someone that they needed to worry about. He was a loyal, good soldier. Perhaps it was not. I don't. Again, I can sort of understand why he might have done that. But I think it's clear that he was also clever enough to see that the writing was on the wall. He must have known that Germany was losing the war. And he must have known that the failure of the V2 programme to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, which he must have known he couldn't do, would not endear him to the Nazi hierarchy. And so he began to figure out how he was going to get the heck out of Dodge. He was aided in this by the Americans. Uh, the Americans had a very keen interest, shall we say, in V2 technology. And because of that, the Americans decided that it would be good for them if they could capture some of the German scientists involved in the development and production of the V2. The Soviets also thought much the same thing. Uh, the Americans launched something called Operation Paperclip. I don't know what the Soviets called their operation, but they had something similar. The idea was they were going to go and capture as many American rocket scientists as they could get their hands on and spirit them away to either Russia and the Soviet Union or to America, depending on who was doing the spiriting. Von Braun figured out that this would be happening. He may have had intelligence, he may not, uh, but he, he realised that he was a valuable asset. And he determined that getting captured by the Soviets would, um, to use a colloquialism, really suck. Um, whatever else he was, uh, von Braun was certainly a vehement anti-communist. And he had no illusions about how he would be treated if he became a prisoner of the Soviets. Uh, they might well need his brains, um, but the rest of his body was fine for beating with rubber hoses, as far as the Soviets were concerned. And I think the subsequent treatment of the uh, German scientists that the Soviets did get hold of sort of bears his, fear, his fears out. Whereas he figured the Americans were people he could do business with. And he was right. So he got himself captured whilst in possession of top secret blueprints for the V2 weapon uh, by the Americans. And as part of Operation Paperclip, he was whisked away to uh, Fort Bliss, just outside El Paso in Texas, um, where he was joined by a team of fellow captured German scientists and some American army rocket people and some, you know, sort of general academic American rocket folk. It should be said that the British were very much not in favour of this. Perhaps it's because the V2 had wrought such destruction and such terror uh, in London during the closing months of the Second World War. Uh, I, I can't begin to pretend it was because the British were significantly more principled than the Americans. The British had shown ourselves to be uh, nothing if not pragmatic about this kind of thing. Uh, but in any case, the Americans 
were no longer even pretending that there was an equal partnership going on here. Uh, they had the scientists they wanted. They were now going to go and do their own thing. And the thing that they did proved to be pretty spectacular. And the thing that they did is the thing that von Braun would like to be remembered for. And we'll talk about Apollo next time. Actually, we probably won't talk about Apollo next time. Next time we'll talk about Thought Bubble. But when Thought Bubble is over, we will talk about Apollo because Apollo deserves to be talked about. But we should remember some things about von Braun's Second World War record and the record of the V2 rocket. It's impossible to know exactly what the body count is here. But around about 9,000 people, uh, a mix of civilian and military personnel, largely civilian, I fear, uh, were actually killed by V2 rockets. A further 12,000 or so people who were doing forced labour uh, and or were concentration camp personnel died because they were forced to participate in the production of the V2. So well over half of the people killed by the V2 rocket were killed building it. Von Braun must, as head of the programme, have been aware of what his turnover of personnel was. I I find it difficult to believe that he thought that people were coming in, working in his factory for a very short period of time, then being transferred to somewhere lovely. I don't believe he thought that. He must have known that the reason people didn't work in his factories for very long was because they had a tendency to die there. And I think when we go on to talk about von Braun's very big successes in the 1950s and 60s, that we do not forget his conduct in the 1940s. So, was that the boring preachy part? We've not had a boring preachy part for a bit, unless you can't everything I've said about Elon Musk. But I think we will call it a day there, as far as talking about Von Braun goes. Next time, we will get into the less disturbing stuff, and the birth first of the Mercury programme, then the Gemini program, and then Apollo. But that is for future weeks, and rather crucially, that's for after Thought Bubble. Um, okay, so I think it's probably time to jump to the news. This news really changes everything. Okay, our first item is not strictly speaking news, but it's the first I've heard of it. It's actually something that was announced a couple of weeks ago. And I missed it because I was away, but it's kind of cool. And it's also vaguely Halloweeny because he might have been dead since the 15th century. But there's Dracula news. Now, just to bring people who think that Dracula is a fictional character up to speed. Of course he is. There's no such thing as vampires. I'm really sorry to break it to you, but there isn't. But Stoker did at least based some aspects of the character of Dracula on a real person. Known to history either as Vlad the Impaler or Vlad Dracula. Uh, Dracula because his father was a member of something called the Order of the Dragon. And in, I think it's Hungarian, 
the word for dragon is Dracul. And so he, the father, became known as Dracul. And because his son Vlad was the son of the dragon, or the son of Dracul, he became known as Dracula. Because that's how you do that. So for all the Anglophone weight we put on the name Dracula, um, it's just Hungarian for son of the dragon. That's all it means. Although that's still, as names go, pretty flipping metal, if you ask me. Anyway, point is, real person did actually exist. Uh, and not particularly a nice guy, not a vampire, but got the name the Impaler because if you invaded the his country, you were quite likely to end up impaled on a spike. Real person who really existed, and because he's a real person who really existed, there is stuff that was his that exists. Not that much. It's surprising how little stuff survives through history, but they got some letters. They found some letters that, that they demonstrated, you know, definitely were letters from the real Vlad Dracul, or Vlad Dracula, uh, a while ago now. And they've been analysing these things, not just for what he wrote, but chemically, to see what traces of stuff do, you know, can we, can we find, can we tell anything about the man who wrote these letters from whatever forensic evidence he's left on the document. Now, I, I'm going to confess that, that they started doing this a, 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 about a year, maybe a bit more ago, and I was a little cynical. I mean, how on earth, you know, these things have not been kept hermetically sealed, and it's 500-odd years. How, how, how on earth are you preserving stuff for this long? But, you know, they had a go, and um, it turns out that the chemical analysis indicates that somebody who was in close contact with these letters had something called hemochloria. Uh, now, that is you know, quite impressive, actually, to, to diagnose a, a physical condition by analysing something that they held in their hand hundreds of years ago is really, really, really impressive. I, 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 but it's not until you discover what hemochloria is that it gets really cool, given who we're dealing with. Now, I, I, I didn't know what hemochloria was, um, but what it basically means is the 15th century prince, Vlad III, also known as Vlad the Impaler, also known as Vlad Dracula, um, cried tears of blood. Actual blood crying from his eyes is what people would have seen because of this condition. Uh, I, it's, it's, oh, wow. How, how much more appropriate could that? That must have been terrifying. Which, of course, makes me a little cynical because... Quite a lot was written about Vlad the Impaler at the time. There's quite a lot of contemporary stuff about him, mostly the way uh, people wished he'd stop impaling them on spikes. And at no point have I been able to find a reference, and I have looked, to anyone at the time commenting that 
This crazy guy that was impaling people on spikes was weeping tears of blood as he did so. And I'm fairly sure that if you'd been there and seen that, you would probably have thought it worth mentioning. So, yes, this is an actual news report that is based on actual science. But the historian in me makes me doubt it. I can only assume that the forensic evidence, the chemical evidence they've got that suggests this condition is either misleading or inaccurate or actually is evidence of somebody that's handled this document having had this condition, but it wasn't the guy that wrote it. Because I'm fairly sure that of all figures in history, if Vlad Dracula had cried tears of blood, we'd know. We'd have known all the time. I, it probably wouldn't have been put down to a medical condition, but it would certainly have been put down to his vampirism, I would have thought. And yes, I know I said he wasn't a vampire. He wasn't. But you know what I mean? People have been telling stories about this guy for hundreds of years at this point. And they, they, would have, they, they just would have mentioned it. So anyway, there's that. That's your Halloween story for this week. Bit late. I know it's a couple of days ago, but look, we come out on a Thursday. What are you going to do? Anyway, more news. OK, now this is proper breaking news. As I sit here recording this uh, around about quarter to 11 at night on the 1st of November, there's a thing happening right now at Bletchley Park. There are people, movers and shakers, world leaders, tech leaders, people with an interest in AI who have come together for a conference to talk about AI. And I'm not sure about it, to be honest. I mean, I I am all for it. I really do think that we probably should put rather more thought into what we're going to do with AI before we actually, you know, build it. Chat, chat GPT is one thing. Chat G, GPT is not really AI. It's, it's artificial, certainly, but it's not intelligent. It, it's a large language model. It's an aggregator. It, 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 it deals in probabilities. It understands that if you have a word, there are a number of words that are likely to follow it, and it puts them together. And it's getting quite good at it. It's getting good enough, I think, to beat the Turing test, uh, which, if you are unfamiliar, is a test proposed by uh, Alan Turing, uh, the, the father, I would suggest, of modern computing, who at Bletchley Park did quite a lot of work on um, computing. And he suggested that if you had a person who was having two conversations, one conversation with a human and one conversation with a computer, if the human couldn't tell which was which, then you would have to treat that, that computer as though it was sentient because you wouldn't be able to be sure whether it actually was sentient or whether it was merely a machine that was mimicking sentience. I'm oversimplifying it, but that's basically it. Regular listeners may remember that a few months ago there was a Google employee working on their BARD AI system who was fired because he leaked a whole bunch of proprietary Google secrets, I guess, uh, because he was convinced that Google Bard was in fact sentient. He was wrong, I think. I mean, I, that's a huge thing for me to say. I'm actually not qualified to make that judgment. But lots of people who are qualified to make that judgment all agreed that he was wrong. So that'll do for me for now. The point is 
that I think Alan Turing was probably wrong about this. I think being able to conduct conversation as though you were a human person is not necessarily the bar that Turing thought it was. Not because Turing didn't know what he was talking about, but because he had no way of anticipating exactly the way computing would develop. And I, I certainly don't think he could have really foreseen large language models. And of course, since I have just mentioned Turing, um, I I should point out, as I like to do every time I mention uh, Alan Turing, uh, that he was appallingly treated by the British state. Um, he's one of those very few people in the world who has a demonstrable negative body count in that there are an awful lot of people who survived the Second World War because of him. Not just because of him, but he was a major component in the cracking of the Enigma Code. Uh, he was, all, therefore, without question, involved in shortening the war by quite a long time, which meant that even if that's all cracking the Enigma Code did, he saved a lot of lives because an awful lot of people on all sides from many countries did not die in the meat grinder that was the Second World War. And instead of being lauded and celebrated by a grateful populace, uh, he was hounded for being gay and chemically castrated and may have killed himself. I actually prefer to think he didn't. His cause of death was not in question. He was killed because he ate an apple that had a toxic substance on it. Uh, I can't remember what the toxic substance was, but it was something that Turing would have been working with. You know, it's not like that he would have procured this specially or anything. And lots of people who knew him said that, yeah, do you know what? It's entirely possible that he had this stuff on his hands, didn't wash his hands, ate the apple, the stuff got from his hands onto the apple and that killed him. That's entirely possible. And I prefer to think of that. Um, but I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should give him the agency of having taken his own life and taken some control over it. I don't know. Uh, but ultimately, he was shabbily treated and we should all be thoroughly ashamed. Uh, I will go into more detail in, in, on Alan Turing in a later show. Um, but that's why Bletchley Park matters to me. Bletchley Park is associated with computing and that kind of thing. So having the summit there is actually surprisingly sharp for our current leaders who are not that great in my view at presenting things cleverly uh this one yeah all right score um whether they're going to come up with anything important it's impossible to say at this point i i, I have a horrible feeling it's going to be a massive talking shot but we won't know uh I'll, I'll we'll look back in on on what it comes up with next week when there's something to report but just you know something to keep an eye on in the news as it happens OK, I think probably the other big bit of news, I trailed this last week, but I'm still quite excited about it. Uh, Doctor Who news. Obviously, we can't talk still about American stuff because the actors are still on strike, but we can talk as much as we like about Doctor Who. So I'm gonna because I am recording this at nearly 11 o'clock at night on the 1st of November. And that means all day. And I haven't had time to look at any of it yet. Well, a little bit, actually, more more on that later. I haven't had very much time to look at any of it yet, but all day since this morning, there's been what I think is correctly termed a metric shedload 
of Doctor Who on the iPlayer. If you have access to the BBC iPlayer, then you have access to almost all of Doctor Who. And my word, it's marvellous. There's so much classic Who. And it's not just classic Who. There's Torchwood up there. There's the Sarah Jane Adventures, which honestly I've never seen because they were on at tea time at a time when I couldn't watch telly at tea time. And we didn't have streaming much and stuff. Uh, there's Class, which is better than you think. Uh, there's all kinds of good stuff up there. There's even Heaven Helpers, Canine and Company, which doesn't have the best reputation because it's not very good. But actually... I can still wallow in nostalgia with it, and I'm gonna, frankly. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not looking forward to the best weekend ever, uh, and this is gonna make it a heck of a lot more palatable. There's also a really cute thing they've done, which I hope they do more of. I've only found one on there at the moment. I don't know whether they've shot any more, but a thing called TARDIS Tales, which involves the fifth Doctor, who, frankly, is my Doctor. Not always my favourite Doctor, Sometimes that's 12. Sometimes that's 13. Very occasionally it's 10 and very occasionally it's 11. But mostly my doctor is five. And the fifth doctor is talking to Tegan, played obviously by the wonderful Jeanette Fielding, uh, the fifth doctor, of course, the amazing Peter Davidson, who is also Dr. Ten's father-in-law, but we don't talk about that. Anyway, what they've done is they've taken all the episodes from a fifth Doctor story called Earthshock, uh, which is notable because it's the one where Adric dies. Sorry, spoilers for a thing that's very nearly 40 years old now. And it's, it's a story that I remember especially fondly. And what they've done is they've taken all the episodes, because uh, younger people may not know this, but back in the day, Doctor Who used to be half an hour long and stories used to be spread over four or five episodes. And what they've done is they've taken all the episodes of the story Earthshock and edited them together into one long film. It's about two hours long. And they've bookended it with a meeting between a very old, because he is now, Fifth Doctor, played by Peter Davidson, and again, a, a much older Tegan, who was one of the Fifth Doctor's companions, played by, as I say, Jeanette Fielding, meeting in a TARDIS, not the TARDIS, a TARDIS. I'm not telling you more about the TARDIS than that, because I don't want to spoil it. Uh, and they have a little a little chat, and for reasons that are explained in the little bookendy things that they filmed, uh, settle down to tell a story. And the first story they tell is the one about Adric. And I really liked it. I mean, I, I didn't actually sit through the whole film bit uh, because, uh, look, look, I own the original on DVD, all right? I've seen it many, many, many times. I will sit down and watch the whole thing when I've got two hours spare. But I did kind of just fast forward to the bookendy bits at the beginning and the end. And they're really nicely done. I, it, it, it gave me all the nostalgia hits that I could possibly have wanted. There is a little bit of overacting, I have to say, but also have to say it's very clearly deliberate overacting they are clearly Jeanette Fielding and Peter Davidson clearly having huge fun doing this which is part of the fun for me as a fan I guess I, I am genuinely interested 
to see how younger folk who don't know the classic Doctor Who stuff take to it. Uh, I really hope they do. If you are a young person, and honestly, from where I'm sitting right now, most of you are looking pretty young, and you don't know the original version of Doctor Who, you know, Doctors 1 to 6, 1 to 7, really? Yeah, 1 to 7. 1 to 8, really, I suppose. I suppose we have to count the TV movie, which is also there, which means we've, we've, we've cleared some some broadcasting rights because that was a Fox thing. Although, of course, Disney Plus are now distributing Doctor Who worldwide and Disney Plus own Fox. So I suspect that wasn't that hard a deal to do in the end. But, yeah, genuinely, if you're if you're new to classic Who, I'd love to hear what you think of it. I hope you like it as much as I do. Uh, yes, the special effects are utter bobbins. Um, but actually, that's one of the things that I'm fascinated by. I mean, I, I, I've mentioned the tank at the end of Robot already, but what I love about the special effects from back in the day, and actually, I, I would say the same thing about original series Star Trek too, because they either didn't have the money or the technology, or both, they had to be really ingenious. And sometimes it didn't work. Um, if you watch the Ark in Space, Watch for the monster made of green bubble wrap. Just, you know, it's clearly green bubble wrap. And there's there's no denying it. It looks like a man who's had a parcel accident. But I find it charming. And it also hits me, as I say, in the nostalgias. And that's why I want to know what young people think about it. Because I might just be enjoying it because it takes me back to a point in my childhood when actually stuff was pretty okay. And I didn't have to worry about all the stuff I've been dealing with this week for a start. Am I just an oldie who is wallowing in the nostalgia of the days before I had to adult? Maybe. Let me know. Let me know what you think. Genuinely, I'd love to know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. OK, honestly, I haven't been able to pay attention to the news much this week. So um, we'll probably leave that there. And I suppose there is one other piece of news that I can't just pass by. I'm not sure it's geek exactly. Friends was well, it was a, it was pretty much the acme of mainstream back in the day, wasn't it? But still, I have a real soft spot for Friends. I shouldn't. I am completely aware of how terrifyingly problematic that it is. But I I do have a real soft spot for friends. And one friend in particular. I always wanted to be Chandler. This will surprise nobody who knows me. I used to say that I wanted to be Chandler, but I was probably Ross. Having watched a couple of episodes of Friends over the last couple of months, I am definitely not Ross. Kind of worried I might be Joey. Anyway. You all know where this is going. It's with huge sadness that I have to just very briefly mark the passing of Matthew Perry, who played Chandler Bing in Friends, and who got the last word, as befits Chandler, in the show when it finished. He took a character who was almost designed to be unlikable and made him likable. 
that's no mean feat as an actor. It takes not just skill, but a fair degree of natural charisma. I don't think you can fake it. Now, Matthew Perry was not a, a not a, not a perfect person by any means. I'm sure at times he was very difficult. He had his troubles. But he did kind of try and deal with those troubles in ways that might have helped other people. And but I really appreciate that about him. Uh, we don't know the details of his death, and frankly, I don't think we need to. I hope that his family and his friends, the people who really knew him, get the closure that they need. But beyond that, it's none of our business what happened. Uh, tragic accident or, or, or whatever, whatever caused the accident, it doesn't matter. What matters is that he was a guy who made some mistakes, tried to fix them, and who brought a great deal of joy into the lives of a great many people. Certainly 20-something me was a very big fan. So, here's to Matthew Perry. We'll see him at some point in Central Perk. And that just about brings us to the point where we need to start wrapping things up. Before we do that, two things. First of all, um, another obituary of sorts. Uh, it is with huge, huge sadness that I note that the Harrogate Tea Rooms has decided to cease trading. Um, I loved the Harrogate Tea Rooms. Back in the day, when Destination Venus was in the Westminster Arcade, they kept us supplied with coffee and cake and the occasional toasted sandwich and some really, really good scones. And I'm sad that they're not going to be there anymore. And it's just a reminder, I keep mentioning this, wherever you are, if you have local independent businesses, Use them, please, because if you don't, they disappear. I understand that the good folk behind the Harrogate Tea Rooms might well be doing something with their scones in the future. Believe me, if I've got anything to tell you about the scones, I will let you know, because they are some of the finest scones I've ever eaten. Almost, only almost, but almost as good as my grandma's. And believe me, I do not say that lightly. And of course, in better news, if you're listening to this, Thought Bubble is but a weekend away. Saturday and Sunday, the 11th and 12th of November, is Thought Bubble weekend. It's going to be flipping awesome. And I could not be more excited if I tried. Tickets are still available online. Uh, just go to www.thoughtbubblefestival.com. The best value ticket is without question the weekend pass. That is going to cost you £30, including the booking fee. That's for Saturday and Sunday. Uh, Saturday only is £21 plus a £1 booking fee, so that's £22 quid altogether. Sunday only is £21 plus a £1 booking fee, so £22 quid altogether, as I say. The whole weekend is £29 plus a £1 booking fee. So for 30 quid, you can go to, for both days. That's 
that's the best value ticket. I strongly urge you, if you have the time, to go for both days. Seriously, you will not regret it. Uh, doors open at 10 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday. They close again at 6 p.m. on the Saturday and at 5 p.m. on the Sunday. And if you've got even the slightest interest in comics and art and how it's all done, you can fill two days at Thought Bubble, no problem. Uh, if you have under 12s, because I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, 29 quid, 30 quid, if you include the booking fee, 30 quid per person. I've got three kids. I can't afford to go to that. Well, if you've got kids under 12, they can get in for free, first of all. Uh, they must be accompanied by a paying adult. But take children. Take as many children as you like. Um, they, under 12s, accompanied by a fee-paying adult, get in for free. And if you are over 65, if you have qualified for your bus pass, you also get in free. You may need to show them some ID. But honestly, if you're over 65, you've got a bus pass. Just wave it at them. Um, and if you are a carer or a support worker for somebody who would like to go to Thought Bubble, they've got to pay for their ticket. But if they need you because you are their carer or support worker and they can't go if you don't go, you, my friend, also get in for free. So... You know, you'll need to talk to people on the door, probably, but you can do that. You can book those tickets online as we speak. Uh, there is a small discount if you are going to go in cosplay. A weekend pass, if you're going in cosplay, will cost you £27 plus a £1 booking fee. So you don't save a huge amount, but you save a bit. And if you're going for one of the days, uh, then if you're going in costume... £19 plus the £1 booking fee. So it doesn't save you a massive amount, but you do get a little bit of recognition for going in cosplay. Uh, you can also pre-order a Thought Bubble 2023 tote bag to put in all your swag. Uh, that'll cost you a tenner. And you can pick them up at the convention. And I've seen the design for these. They look the business. So you might want to do that. I'm certainly going to be grabbing one. Uh, and actually, top tip. I'll mention this next week as well, because it is a serious top tip. Every year, the Thought Bubble team have red T-shirts with an exclusive design on them. You can't have one of those. Only the red shirts can have one of those. Uh, to be a red shirt, you need to be a volunteer at Thought Bubble. And I think it's probably too late to volunteer now. But you can have a shirt with the same design in a different colour. You can't have a red one. They're exclusive. Also, I say this every year, but really, it's a convention full of geeks and you're making them wear red shirts. Has nobody seen Star Trek TOS? Come on! Anyway, I say this every week, every year, and uh, every year I get blank looks from the team who manage Thought Bubble because they're not Trekkers. Nobody's perfect, I guess. But, yo, know, you can have a, a, a not red T-shirt with this year's exclusive Thought Bubble design on it, designed specially for the show. Um, top tip, buy one as soon as you go in. I'm not kidding. Find the store that sells the T-shirts. And if you like the look of them, buy one. Because for the last three Thought Bubbles, the design has been amazing. 
And I've thought, I'll get one of those next time I'm passing. And every year they've sold the flip out. And that's annoying. Don't don't be me. Bag yourself a T-shirt. Otherwise, top tip, and I'll mention this next week as well. With all with all conventions, but with Thought Bubble in particular, don't buy anything at all until you have done at least one circuit of all of the halls. Because if you start spending your money as soon as you walk in, you will have spent all of your money before you've got past the first two or three tables. It sucks, but learn to pace yourself and budget and get really good at collecting business cards or taking pictures of people's websites and web addresses so that if you don't have enough budget on the weekend, but you see something you really want, you can easily find it online. Okay, you can always support the creators that you meet at Thought Bubble online. Most of them have websites, so you can do that too. And of course, I have an event at Thought Bubble as well. I am helping to curate uh, a show of Rachel Smith's Nap Comics. Uh, the original art will be on display uh, at Destination Venus in the Everyman, or possibly in the Everyman. We ha we haven't entirely decided exactly where we're putting the stuff yet. Um, so more of that next week. Okay, I think we'll probably leave that there. Uh, just a little bit of advance notice: the weekend after Thought Bubble uh, is the Geek Pub Quiz at Major Tom's. That's the 18th of November. So I will remind you next week. Uh, but seriously, if you go to Thought Bubble and have a fantastic time, you'll be really bummed out that it's it's over by the following Sunday and. The Geek Pub Quiz is exactly what you'll need to cheer yourself up again. So, get down to Major Tom's for, you know, seven-ish on Sunday the 18th of November. It'll be, a, it'll be worth it. It'll be a great night out. So, check the Geek Pub Quiz on their socials. Check out Thought Bubble on the socials as well. They're on the, uh, the Instagrams and the Facebooks and whatever Twitter's calling itself this week. And they're on Blue Sky. And now I've ad-libbed my way through most of that. It's getting very late and we are nearly, very, very nearly at the end of the hour. So I should probably start and wrap things up properly. We will be back next week with news of space, news of science, both of which we've missed this week. But there's stuff going on with SpaceX. There's stuff going on with the James Webb Space Telescope. And we should have news from the AI Summit at Bletchley Park. So all of that coming next week along with anything else we can shoehorn in, really. Please do get in touch if you have a geeky event you need to plug on the Geek Community Notice Board, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. And uh, that's also the email address to use if you've got any comments or suggestions or feedback of any kind. We do love to hear from you. So do get in touch and we will see you next week. Same time. And whatever listening device you choose to use, that's entirely up to you. We, we make no stipulations in that regard. Until then, be kind to yourself and be kind to everybody else. After the week I've had, I've got to tell you, it really does matter and it makes a difference. So stay safe and above all else, stay geeky.